When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Today here, qua host only, is Thea Lenarduzzi. Hello, oh, Thea. Hello, hello. I'm continuing the qua thing. Yeah, I noticed. Uh, the other thing is, should we mention Olipo as an Olympian constraint of this podcast or is that too much? I think maybe our Ulipian constraint should be that we must not mention Ulipo in every podcast. The first rule yeah. of Freedom of Books of yeah. in the Movie yeah. podcast is not mentioning Ulipo. Yeah. All right, done. Uh, if you like Ulipo and that sort of thing, and I'm sure you do, do get subscribing to the TLS. I think this week's edition, I really do think this is one of the best we've done, although I would say that, of course. Here's a cheap offer for you. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. That's podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. That's the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. And you'll get five issues for just £5 or $5. On today's show, Claire Loudon asks the unimprovable question, do the kids still read John Updike? The answer in the world of identity politics and the questioning of male privilege is almost certainly no. But should they? She makes a powerful defence. Her piece this week is one of the best in my time as editor and she'll be here to talk us through it. Toby Lichtig knows a bit about Updike being our fiction editor, so he'll join us for that chat. And he's also written a piece about Chelsea Manning, having watched a new documentary of her life. So he'll come for the patriarchal novelist and stay for the transgender disruptor of American society. And retaining our American theme, what with this being Independence Day week, Eric Rouchway has written about American Nazis and their prevalence in the 40s. And nothing celebrates a wonderful, vibrant nation quite like discussing its far-right precursors to the present day. I can first remember consuming the rabbit books by John Updike in one glorious prolonged gulp, all four of them in the Everyman edition, 1,500 pages of expansive precision about Harry Angstrom, surely an everyman for all literature. My period of fiction reviewing, which followed a few years later, coincided, alas, with Updike's dotage. Every couple of years I'd open another new novel, The Widows of Eastwick, Villages, Terrorist, with a familiar sense of proleptic disappointment. 
please don't write badly about sex and boringly about everything else I thought. And he did. I really felt that his late work was damaging that great reputation. So it's really nice to read Claire Loudon magnificently examining the writing of early Updike, his first four novels, including the Apocal Rabbit Run. She uses the opportunity to pose some considered questions like, are the kids reading John Updike now? Answer, probably not. But that may be because of politics rather than aesthetics. Updike committing the cardinal sin of writing big, confident novels full of sex and thinly veiled autobiography. Or being a penis with a thesaurus, in the words of one female critic. Loudon mounts the case for the defence, not least by following one of Updike's rules from his own outstanding literary criticism. Try to understand what the author wished to do and do not blame him for not achieving what he did not attempt. A noble almost utopian sentiment that dates him far more than his fiction does. Fairness is not very 2019. Nobody told Claire Loudon that, and she's happily here to talk fairly about John Updike now. Claire, hello. Hi. So, it is 2019, sadly in some respects. Uh, What is the reputation of John Updike? If I say John Updike to people who've read him or have heard of him, what do you think they think? I think that a lot of people probably remember the later novels, as you do, Um, I hope that a lot of people think straight away of the short stories, which for me are some of the best things that he wrote. And I think people think straight away of Rabbit. I think those are the things that encapsulate Updike. I also, as you can tell from the piece, worry that people hear Updike and think has been and think that he's he's old news, especially younger people. But perhaps you guys think I've been too squeamish there. You're actually the first people I've really spoken to about this. No, I I think not has been. I think they think creepy old man they think of it through the context of a certain degree of identity politics he writes a lot about the male gaze and and that's not very trendy now it's challenged very often now but do we know that do we know have his sales slumped i mean is this just an impression i think there is some whispering in in the and you talk about this in 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 the piece claire that there's a kind of view of Bellow, view of Roth, view of Updike. And you can extend that backwards actually to Thomas Hardy who gets quite a bad rap these days for the male gaze um, and Dickens, people are saying kind of, why would you bother with Dickens? Um, <laughs> I, I, I have definitely heard both of those two recently spoken about as kind of we're done with all that. I wonder if they're um, cut a bit more slacks of distance though, whereas you know we all remember Updike yeah. being alive still. He should have known better. He should have known better yeah. because you know it was only a handful of years ago that he was still with us even though Rabbit might have been written. Well you yeah. make the point that these books ago. are you're reading four books written in the 50s. These feel old-fashioned books, though, in the sense of not old-fashioned with the writing, but the, the setting is old-fashioned. Yeah, and that really astonished me, actually, because I read Rabbit years and years ago. Um, and, I mean, I, I suppose kind of 12, 15 years ago, which technically isn't that long. But coming back to it now, I was shocked by how even further ago it felt than it did when I first read it. Yeah. Did you experience um, the rabbits very differently than rereading? Did yes, you, did. Did you love them the first time and then when you went back to them more recently you... Uh, yeah, I think that's it. probably true, actually. Um, certainly a Rabbit Run, which I just remembered as a sort of outright masterpiece, actually. Yeah. And I don't think it... I don't... I wouldn't... Uh, there are bits of it that are better than pretty much anything else in that time period. But uh, taken as a whole, I think it's got problems. And I, I certainly didn't see that reading it as a younger reader. We'll, we'll talk about the problems in, in a moment. David Foster Wallace, is he possibly responsible for the beginnings of the turn against mm. uh, Updike? Because he talks about the, the great male narcissists, as he, he calls them, and he places Updike in that canon, which is very... And I remember the reason why I think people do say this is when writers die, 
you get people, I've seen this on social media, when when Roth died, everyone's saying, why are you only talking about Roth? You're only talking about Roth because he's white and male. You're not talking about other great authors. And there is a line that is Updike, Roth, Bellow, and they are white male authors. But that doesn't mean there are no authors of colour out there. It's just that they happen to represent a certain tradition that did exist. Um, and does, and and many people's eyes does still exist. I think you, I mean, Jonathan Franzen and Jonathan Safran Fur are very much kind of in that in that pocket still today. And people, I mean, people hated Safran Fur's last book, which I thought was rather good actually. And it seemed to be as much about who he represented mm. as a person as about the the novel itself. I thought. So what did David um, Foster Wallace said? He he basically said this is where he quotes a, an unnamed female reader saying he, the he penis with a, a thesaurus. A, yeah, he quotes a bunch of different. Um, women that he's spoken to about Updike and this is I mean I suppose this is partly what I had in my head when I was thinking about the way we see him now because that review is back I suppose is it in the it's, I've, I've got the date 97. 97. 97 exactly and already at this point Foster Wallace is claiming that he's going to parties and he's saying kind of what do you think of Updike and everyone's saying why would you read him he's a penis with a thesaurus um he quotes about four or five different yeah very, very negative reactions. Total from number of pages about Mexico's repossession of the American Southwest, 0.1. Total number of pages about Ben Turnbull's penis and his various feelings about it, 7.5. But that is true of Updike. I mean, one of the criticisms, I think, of late Updike, and this is my... There is, a, there is a legitimate criticism, is there, of ageing male novelists who have no business in writing about sex and write about it embarrassingly. Why do they have no business yeah, writing about say, it? Yeah, why do they because have? they write about it so embarrassingly. And it seems to me they write about it with an element of fantasy. If you look at Qureshi, Jacobson, Roth, Updike, virtually all of these novels, late novels, turn on old men having sex with young women. It seems to me. And there feels like, and this may be unfair, and, a, and then when the, that, that unembarrassed gaze of Updike, yet again for the 34th time, dwells upon the genitalia of someone else it feels a bit like he's been there and secondly it is a bit creepy when a 75 year old man writes about sex with a 30 year old is that not right i mean i don't think i can wholeheartedly agree i understand the point in the main if you end up with a very narrow canon where you've got prominent writers who are given lots of time and space because they have risen to great heights in their career and they're using that time and space to write solely about one thing, whatever that one thing might be, I can see that that's problematic. But when it comes to the individual instance of a 75-year-old man writing about sex, if he's doing it well, fine. Yeah. I think you can easily argue that Updike isn't always doing it Particularly well. Particularly late. And I guess my um, point about late Updike is he's seldom doing it well. I mean, Villages is a... Is a I don't know if you've read Villages. I haven't read Villages. But it is a, it is a constant series of descriptions of sex uh, with virtually nothing else underpinning it. It's a kind of... And, and then in the later books, that happens very often. There's these... these and, and I don't think he's writing well at that point. I mean, maybe there's an issue about should should authors in their dotage be allowed to publish books that ruin their reputation? Because well, that's you, a you very so, difficult yeah, and interesting and question. And you can sort of say that about any number of bands who keep gigging for way too long and they're kind of undoing all the good work that they've done. Who, who are you to stop them? Well, you've also mentioned late Roth, and there's a, yeah. for example, and there's an enormous amount in late Roth, not necessarily the sex scenes, that's absolutely brilliant. So I mean, exactly. I would and say late Roth, the, the slight novels are are do a disservice to his reputation. And but I the late nineties ones don't. And yeah, well, well, there's a difference between the late nineties novels and the the two thousands novels. And Updike didn't write a good book for many years, many many years. And I, I mean, who, who am I to stop him? Exactly, I've no business except the opinion that someone who likes him as a writer 
is it a shame? Is it a damage to someone's legacy? Another two years, another book comes out. It is not a good book. It has clearly not had the the input of any editor because the person is so grand at that point. Yeah, that's yeah. That's I mean, we do, and we do see that. Do we see? Do we not see that? I mean, I'm just offering this as a theory. Do we not see that with canonical great writers that their last ten years are filled with books that possibly could have been edited or not written or not published? I think again, it, talking generally in the main, there's a case for that absolutely. Um, and I actually going back to what you were saying about how people receive Updike now, I almost wonder if in the late nineties, when Foster Wallace is writing that review, whether what you're describing is felt kind of more urgently because he's still writing and you're having to watch it happen. Yeah. And you're thinking, don't do it again. Yeah. But actually, we're now in this lovely position where he's lived a long and full life and he's gone, and we've got the whole body of work. And the great thing is that within that body of work, you can now look at it as a whole. There's enough that's gold there that you just think. I think that's, I think that must be true. And that, there's the question is, do you think that fairness will exist? Do you think that ability to say, read the rabbit books? I mean, arguably, I mean, for me, rabbit is rich. The third one is peak Updike. That's almost a bit of Updike where he's just absolutely smashing yeah. it. And he's, it's the early 80s and... He's got Harry Angstrom down exactly right. There's none of the weird Joycean flourishes. <laughs> which, yeah, which really kind of take over the first two, don't they? Do you feel that in the, these 50s novels, you feel a bit of Joyce? Oh, all the time. I mean, but that's another interesting thing is that he's such an unashamed fanboy of Joyce. That it just kind of keeps sort of, he keeps getting hijacked by Joyce. Um, or I don't know what kind of like hitching a lift with Joyce. I don't know what the right metaphor would be. But, um, and when it happens, you you kind of, you would you admire the chutzpah, actually. You think, God, that's so obviously Joyce and I, I would never have the, the courage to go there if I were you. Um, and then you think it's also a bit it's a bit naff. And then he gets away with it somehow in that he then goes on to do something updikean and brilliant afterwards. And it's almost like he's using him as a as a as, as a stepping stone and a, or a, a crutch almost. And although it would be ideal if it if it didn't happen, you kind of understand that it has to happen to, to hoist him up into the position where he can go off on one of his brilliant kind of flights of microscopic detail that then zoom out into... Yeah. Um, so is that what you would say is Updikean there? Yeah, I think it, I, I, would, I would say it was Updikean. There's a, I think it's a phrase in Couples where he actually... He describes... He doesn't, he's not actually describing his own writing, obviously. He's describing, um, he's describing sex and he's doing it very well. Um, he talks about um, laminations of cross-purpose... Um, between two couples in bed together and actually being able to chart those really like shiftingly minute interactions between people um, and spread that out, something that's taken place without words in the space of a few seconds, to spread that over the, out over the space of a whole paragraph and to do it um, intelligibly and not to bore the reader, that's 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 just genius, I think. But so is the problem that he... I think of that as updiking, yeah. And is the updiking approach to not have any sense of distinction between the subject matter sometimes so you talk about how he writes about clouds i think in couples there's another example of surfaces flat surfaces in couples like tar paper roofs and yes uh, yeah there's it just it's a bit too much there's a feel that it, that he he pours the full glare of his imagination on things and sometimes there are things that are worthy of that and there's some things where it works and sometimes where it doesn't quite work but you can i suspect reading your piece and i would probably agree with this as well to say that's worth it. That's the sort of that's the price you pay for something as, as as great as that. Yeah, I'm nodding here. I agree with everything you just said about this sort of almost kind of um, indiscriminating micro gaze that he trains on everything. Um, and sometimes you think 
he should have pulled back at this point and it would have the, the whole thing would have had a bigger shape. I think partly possibly that's why the short stories often work better than the novels because they're compressed, he's forced to be selective by the form. You said that gaze is particularly effective when it comes to nature. Yeah, I do. I think even in the, the towards the end of time Which is not a great book. The um Foster Wallace is is angry about. There are some there's some beautiful moments of nature writing in that. Um, uh, and gardening and of the farm you talk about this is ra- this is rabbit gardening actually. Uh, daffodils and narcissi unpack their trumpets. The shaggy golden suds of bloomy forsythia glow through the smoke that fogs the garden. He loves folding the hoed ridge of crumbs of soil over the seeds. Sealed, they cease to be his. The simplicity, getting rid of something by giving it to itself. God himself folded into the tiny adamant structure, self-destined to a succession of explosions. Now, that's beautiful. It's poetic. It There's is. a bit of... We can, send, we can hear other voices maybe uh, a bit in that. But... It is also making a great deal of very little. Literally, the tiny seed becomes self-destined to succession of explosions. Some people, I suspect, will think that's overripe. Yeah, think? they'll think it's too pleased with itself. I think that's another criticism that gets levelled against very stylish writing. That, James Wood says that a bit. About the, it, I I, yeah, I can imagine that, actually. Nabokov comes in for the same criticism, I think. I, I hate falling back on this. I wonder if you could say at this point that it's a matter of taste. For me, I think that's done beautifully I think it becomes a problem again if we're talking about shape as a whole if you have too much of it but on the level of the sentence I can't get enough of it yeah, I'm, I, I, what do you think Toby? Yeah, yeah no absolutely you know, one, of, one of my guilty pleasures is one of his later novels Brazil um, oh I haven't read that um, one it's, it's, I mean it's a bit silly it's his version of Tristan and Isolde told um, with an Amazonian setting it's, and it's uptight does magic realism <laughs> okay. so there's a lot of luscious description a lot of bad sex writing a lot of very good sex writing he's very good on you've written for us on how to write about sex before a very very good piece about three or four years ago when you talk about the qualia the qualia of sex and he's very very good on that at times mm. you know the kind of the, the sort of the the smells and the, the the particularity and and actually it's a it's a very beautifully written book at times a bit ornate for some taste but I, yeah i i think when when he hits that height he's brilliant yeah what will happen to him do you think in the future claire do you think he's destined to be a part of a culture war because he is writing has written rather these novels that are unashamedly and this is the point about not judging him about except by what he's seeking out to do. He is a very male writer to lots of people in a time where that's not a, that's a term of dispraise. That's our time now. And I think I can't really answer the question because you've got no idea how long this time that we're in, which I think we, we all know what we mean when we say that. It's got a very, it's getting a very specific, very localised feel to it. Um, in a way that, I, for me, I don't know whether you guys agree, that say 2005 didn't have a specific feel to it but if you think about the 60s we kind of know what we mean when we say that I I think we're going to know what we mean when we talk about this Mm. time Um, I don't know how long it'll last and I don't know whether we're going to care as much about the issues we're talking about a lot at the moment um, especially issues surrounding gender we've got no idea how that's going to play out it's changing so fast for me when I look forward to kind of an ideal future point will be a point where we, we, we care less about it in general. So many of the identity politics that we're dealing with now melt slightly because the, this period has, has, has naturally reduced our, our 
are even noticing of gender, but I've got no idea how that will happen. Yeah. There's, there's a brilliant bit in your piece when you, when you talk about what what we might be looking at in 20 years' yeah. time, and you say, the atrocities we're unconsciously committing in our novels today are probably something to do with the environment. All those casual plane journeys in Rachel Cusk's outline trilogy, the takeaway coffee cups in Canal School. And I thought that was actually a, a brilliant observation. I mean, it might be slightly tongue-in-cheek, but possibly only slightly. Yeah, I, I think we, only slightly, but, actually. But, <laughs> but, but, but probably only slightly, absolutely. Yeah. But, but the, the, the point is, we don't know what kind of morality we're going to be having in 20, 30, 40 years time and I think what you're also saying is that we also need to judge literature and all art on its own terms and in the time it was was written as well as simply as whether it you know kind of lives up to our current ideals. Because we really we will be judged there'll be things we're doing now unconsciously that we we don't know about. Of course I mean I can sort of see this as as maybe like we read D.H. Lawrence now we might read Updike. There's yeah, a, there's I think a, there's a huge amount in common, actually. Yeah, a huge amount in common. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting yeah. point, that, because Updike is probably as liable as D.H. Lawrence to damaging quotation, mm. uh, particularly in matters of sex. If you, I mean, Lady Chastity's Lover, if you just... if I mean, yeah. uh, you grab some passages of that. And Hemingway does... A, they do that thing which Updike just about stops doing, I which think, is... I think I know what you're going to say, and that, he doesn't do it, does the, he? That sort of repeti- that sort of enacting mm. of the sort of climactic roles in the sentences. Very with, abstract. Starts yeah. referring to the ocean and yeah. think, no, exactly, stop yeah. the oceans, please. And, a, a, and it says things like pulsing, pulsing, yeah. pulsing, the ocean pulsing. Yeah. It's like we, we understand the biology <laughs> of what you're doing here. And D.H. Lawrence, Hemingway does it actually as well, but Lawrence particularly so. And it's an interesting question. When Updike is as distant as Lawrence... What will we take from him? And that's impossible maybe to say. I actually think that Lawrence is a really interesting um, uh, comparison because I think if you go back even 10, 10, 15 years ago, people were often a bit kind of ooh about Lawrence, but now it's a sort of badge of badge of honour almost to be like a Lawrence fan not exactly a closet Lawrence fan but people say oh I really like D.H. Lawrence and expect it to be something unusual but so many people say it that actually basically everyone loves Lawrence exactly and if they'd said that in the 80s or 90s it would have been a whole different thing because it was still too soon yeah Yeah. so maybe he'll maybe he'll get there I hope he will I hope that this this period of animosity towards certainly towards Bellow I mean that that was a that was a real surprise talking about to people about Bellow um, around the time that I was reading leaders' biographies, and just coming up against utter like Bellow, either Bellow who or Bellow no were the yeah. two responses. And same time with Roth when he died, you know, I remember saying something about Roth and people saying. Interestingly, twenty years after David Foster Wallace wrote that piece, there's now a bit of a Foster Wallace backlash as well. Yeah. And you know, he it's not like he's not included in the mm. canon of, of glass of, houses, of, 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 yeah, yeah. Of white male narcissists. Well, then that says Claire that. Uh, John Updike is very lucky to have uh, this. It's a five thousand word piece, which I think is absolutely brilliantly sensitive to to what he was trying to do. So, uh, thank you very much for that. Thank you. I feel lucky. It was a, such a pleasure to return to him. Hard to say what John Updike would have made of Chelsea Manning. In fact, it's hard to say what anyone should make of her. Is she, as she herself admitted in court, someone who illegally leaked information that endangered people's lives? A trust breaker? A traitor? Or is she a heroic figure determined to make public information that needed to be known, exposing the illegal acts of her nation, a martyr to free speech, a pioneer in support of justice? And, if anything, what does her gender matter to the story? Toby has watched XY Chelsea, a new documentary, and remains here to tell us if it really sheds any light on this most modern of figures. Toby, before we um, talk about the movie, the documentary, what do we need to know about Chelsea? What what, what do people know about Chelsea? Um, 
what we do need to know about Chelsea is that she is a former US uh, intelligence analyst. Um, she was very young when she joined the army. She was 19. And she was he then. She was Bradley Manning. And after two years in the army, age 22, she downloaded and released to WikiLeaks an enormous tranche of documents. I think there were 750,000 of them in all. Um, relating to various, um, they were full of classified information, basically. There were, there were three main tranches. There were, there were what's known as the Iraq war logs, the Afghan war logs, and the diplomatic cables. And this caused an enormous furore, and she went to prison. And the point is, there's no editing, there's no protecting of nope, sources, there's no protecting absolutely of, of military nope, assets or... None whatsoever. So, so, some were really sensitive, some were entirely classified, um, and her, her actions were entirely illegal, and she confessed and said And yes. some of them could have... Has it ever been established the human cost of them? Well, that's that's interesting. There was a recent report um, which said that the leaks didn't damage US security. What they did almost definitely do is um, endanger um, various Afghani and Iraqi sources who have been leaking information to the American army. Which in some ways is worse. Yes. I mean, it's, it, it's, it, 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 it's, it's a vexed thing. Whatever you think about what, what Chelsea Manning did... Um, it, it, it's not. It, it hasn't come without consequences for for, for some of the people, who, you know, lower down the chain. And the great WikiLeaks argument was was, oh, we're just we don't we don't test the quality of information. We don't make editorial judgments. We just believe all information should be freely accessible. But that isn't quite true either, is it? Because they, in terms of dissemination, they prioritised certain information. They accentuated certain information in terms of how it was disseminated to people. Absolutely, and it was, it, was, it was also, it was leaked to WikiLeaks, but also the, the Guardian and the Washington Post did a kind of thorough filleting of the information, and it was how they presented it as well, and it, it came out in various tranches. It didn't sort of all come out in one go. So the story was kept running, and, yeah, exactly, the way the story was told was also important and what, what was chosen to, to be highlighted. Well, as you say, I mean, it shone a vital spotlight on, on some pretty terrible yeah, goings on. So, so for, for example, there were 15,000 unreported civilian deaths um, in, in, in the Iraq war that, it, that it, it revealed. That's that's a massively significant thing. There was footage of an infamous um, attack by an Apache uh, yeah. helicopter which you know which took out a couple of Reuters journalists and those deaths were recorded as enemies killed in action. So and children as well. Children children as well, absolutely. Yeah. And it's so it was it, it was from that point of view for in terms of transparency on the occupation in Afghanistan and particularly Iraq, it shone an incredibly important spotlight. There was a cost. We've talked about the, you know, the, the, the danger to various sources. I think it, it was a very valuable thing for her to have done. Whether it was the right thing to do, it can be valuable and, and wrong. And it was yeah. probably both those things. And also it strikes me with WikiLeaks that it was never, it was never this agentless entirely democratised release of information. There was an ego at the centre of it, Julian oh, Assange, absolutely. which you might get to. And in, there's an in. ego to Manning as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the figure, we'll talk a little bit more about the film in a bit, but the, the figure that is presented is, is not without ego. She, she likes the spotlight and she has this kind of over, overwhelming sense of her own ability to affect change, which is incredibly admirable, but also not without ego. Um, Obama commuted her sentence. He didn't pardon her. He just said she'd served enough hard time, and it was pretty hard time. Well, she was sentenced for 35 she years. She got 35 years, which is, I mean, I think it's unprecedented for a leaker. Um, and so this was deemed very, very harsh by various people. She also had a very difficult time inside. She struggled. She, she transitioned. Kept, she, inside. she transitioned. In, so she was, she was sentenced, I think, in uh, was it 2011, 2013. 2013. I think she transitioned a year or two later. There was there was the difficulty of being in a male prison while she was transitioning, and and then 
she's already spent a lot of time in solitary confinement, which was obviously incredibly difficult. And she had a couple of suicide attempts, which were dealt with by further spells and solitary confinement. So she's very mentally vulnerable. Um, Obama did decide to commute her sentence. This wasn't unusual for him. He uh, he commuted nearly 2,000 sentences over his um, eight years in office, particularly in his final year. It's not it's not, not uncommon for presidents to do a little bit of that at the end of their right. terms. But Trump's going to do it, isn't he? Trump's going to do it. Well, yeah, Trump, Trump's going to do it. He, he yeah. starts with the likes of Conrad Black. Yeah. As I say in my piece, you know, you can, <laughs> you, can, you, can, you, can, you can tell a lot about a president by the sorts of people they choose to uh, show clemency to. Mm. Obama's were mostly for drugs felons given, you know, enormously long sentences. With Manning, he decided to, uh, to, let, to let her go free. Um, I think there was a political motive to this. I mean, of course, there, of course there was. There was a sense, I think, that with Trump about to enter the White House, I think it was three days before Trump started, I think it's a message about transparency and a message about um, how leaking information may be needed over the next few years. So I, I, think, I think there was a kind of coded message in that. Um, also, I mean, I think he genuinely thought that it was a very, a very tough sentence. And that, but presumably, you know, red, red-blooded, red meat-eating Republicans were just like, "What the hell are you doing? This is a traitor." I can't imagine there was a great deal of Republicans who felt oh, absolutely not. This I was mean, a harsh sentence, even. No, know? no, they were they, they were they 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 were aghast. I mean, and, and even you know, for example, there was a piece in the in the Washington Post, which isn't the most right-leaning of the papers, basically saying it was a massive mistake. The Wall Street Journal said it was a you know it was, it was a massive travesty of justice lots of republican speakers paul ryan yeah. highlighted the fact that great that, intellects that, of the age one of the great intellects of the age absolutely highlighted the fact that that man he called her this this young woman or man or whatever whatever she is he is you know, very dismissive of, of of manning as both a person and uh, and an individual um and you know, obviously trump thought it was a, a terrible thing um further complicated by the fact that Manning then had a pop at Obama, which Trump used as an evidence that she was a traitor. Well, why was she not grateful? <laughs> she was grateful for her sentence being commuted, yeah. but she wasn't. She didn't think Obama was a great leader. And actually, it's... She pop- called him weak. She called him weak. Um, she said there have been very few permanent accomplishments in his, uh, in well, his tenure. Well, they're being undone now. And so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's possibly true um, anyway. I mean, what, what, one of the great arguments about yeah. Obama is this great figure on the hill that we all love, particularly from a distance... What actually? How did he actually change the fabric of American society for better? Maybe he could never do it, but he certainly probably didn't. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and there are only f- a few days after she was released, she wrote a um, a piece for the Guardian, um, uh, basically having a go at him and saying that he did too much compromise. So so the fact that he let her off didn't change her her politics and her opinion of him. And, and it's it's another Sorry. example of her bravery. Yeah, really, which is she was prepared to come out and say actually this is what I believe in. She's, you know, she remains a campaigner for minority rights, for trans rights, and for transparency. What is her legal status then? Because she, you were saying in, in your piece, she's she's not out of prison no. entirely. Well, she's not out of prison at all. So she was released. Then uh, a couple of years later, uh, in fact, quite recently, I think it was earlier this year, she was subpoenaed um, to testify against Assange. Um, uh, she had to appear before a grand jury um, with. I think characteristic bloody-mindedness. She objects to the whole grand jury process because it isn't transparent. You know, transparency is her main thing. Yeah. It's behind closed doors. She said she's already said everything she needs to say about what she did to the military tribunal. She's confessed to what she did. She doesn't believe in the grand jury process. She put her foot down, 
and she's been in prison for it. Does she want to defend Assange? Is that the reason? No, I don't think so. I don't think she's she's not. She doesn't seem, and you see this from the film. She's not particularly interested in Assange, and she describes WikiLeaks as a means to an end. They yeah. haven't had much much or any really personal contact i think it's it's again it's a matter of principle for her she doesn't believe in the grand jury process so she was in prison for a bit then her subpoena expired then it was immediately renewed she's now been re-jailed and i think it's another 17 months from here that that term runs which seems like an awful, awful long time yeah and she in and, custody. and when she do you see her in the film going back to jail um it's no it 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 um the the filming ends before sh- the, the the first subpoena comes in, but there's a kind of little line about it towards the end. And in fact, it's 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 um it's sort of tacked on. It's not actually dealt with. You're very not well thrilled with this film, Gemini, are you? I'm not thrilled. It's 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 very interesting from the point of view of this. It's it's, it's an impressionistic portrait, basically. So the filmmaker uh, Tim Travers Hawkins has started filming um, the day uh, we find out that she's getting released, and actually the, the sort of the opening shots are. The, her attorney's office and Obama's on the phone and she gets released and you, we sort of follow her over the course of a year or so and there are flashbacks to earlier on if you don't know anything about her and her story you have to do research and actually I did have to do a bit of research because it it really doesn't fill in the holes very well which it is weird because it's not she's I mean she's she's famous but the actual ins and outs of WikiLeaks is a bit inside baseball it's a bit yeah it is and it's it's complex and it doesn't do a very good job of filling in those holes and you could argue well there are various newspaper reports that can do that but I felt like it it, it sort of dodged the difficult stuff a bit however you do get a good sense of her um, we you get you get her on the campaign trail. She's um, uh, trying to get into the Senate as a sort of de- Democrat primary race, which she loses heavily. But I feel like we didn't really hear very much about that. That when I was reading your piece, that was news to me. Yeah, absolutely. that wasn't very big news. No, at the time. it wasn't. I, I think, think she was a bit of a no hope. She was a bit of a no hoper, and she got absolutely crushed by her opponent. So, but but, but it was it, it was it, it was, was a significant thing to do. Though. It Again, it's a very grand gesture. Yeah, it? it was a significant thing to do. And she's a big Twitter presence, and so there was a lot of noise on Twitter about that. And then, she, is it a significant thing that because? blue-collar middle America of either political tribe are going to be unsettled by her because being a traitor in America is, is, a, is, is a thing far more, I, I would imagine, um, readily expressed, more um, pronounced, more viscerally despised. Particularly a traitor who did things that exposed the army. I mean yeah. that wasn't that wasn't love, and actually, plus she's trans, which people well, don't. Well, exactly, and I was going to say it's really interesting when you were talking before about. Um, Paul Ryan and and his comments. It seems that beca- being transgender somehow becomes a part of her crime. Absolutely. So the Wall Street Journal called her a gender celebrity and said it was a, a an act of political correctness to release her. Now Obama's releasing her it had nothing to do with her transgenderism. And yet this is a film that is called X Y Chelsea. So her transgender identity is utterly bound up with it. It is. It's called X Y Chelsea because that's her Twitter her Twitter handle. But then you could also say that she's chosen her yeah. Twitter handle because her her identity is very much you know you know her identity is a public person well, she's is a very campaigner. much bound. Up. She is, and she, so I said so. You know, her, her two things that she campaigns for are transparency and trans rights. Yeah, and they, those things are alive. Is it possible to to ever imagine this story playing out if she was still? If she had no trans issues whatsoever, she, she, well, if, if if she'd gone into the army as Bradley Manning, stayed as Bradley Manning, 
Does her fate as it currently sits now change? I, it, well, we've it, had films about Edward Snowden. Yeah, we've right? had films about Edward Snowden, and actually, there was—I mean, there was an enormous amount about her when she was still Bradley. Yeah, I, I think it adds another component, and mm. it adds another component. So but would she have been let out sooner? Would she have been? Would she be back in prison? I'm, 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 I, can't, I mean, it's impossible to know this, but is there a sense, at least, an argument made that? I don't. I don't know. I don't think she's she's back in prison now because she's transgender. I think she's back in prison now because she refuses to testify before the grand jury. And I think what people say about her. Um, and the way she, you know, the discourse around her is absolutely um, bound up in her transgenderism and, you know, the sort of her, her traitorishness and her transgenderism for certain people yeah. are combined. Letting down a, a patriarchal male uh, ideal within an army, yeah. people of a certain bent would say, would, would accuse her of that by, by, by simply transitioning. They'd say, well, that, she, she's, that shows you she, she's not fit for the sort of the man's army. And then, of, of course, not long after Trump comes in, he bans transgender yeah. people in the, in the military anyway. So, of course, you know, there's, that's another political angle. Interestingly, when she is, when her sentence is commuted by Obama, Democrats and Demo- Democrat politicians are quite quiet. So they, they've sort of decided they don't... I don't think it's so much the transgenderism, but it's the sort of perceived traitorishness. They, they didn't really come out and say, this was a fantastic decision. They just sort of yeah. didn't say anything. No Democrat who's seen to be anti-military is going to prosper in, exactly. uh, so prosper they, in America, is she? Exactly. Yeah, are they? Um, so where is she in the culture wars? Because she sort of raises various issues. She embodies various issues of the sort of, you know, free speech versus censorship. Uh, the consequences of, of information being circulated online. She's right at that. Then there's the, the transgender issue, which is, again, the heart of... She feels she's a figure at the centre of the cultural wars that go she, on. Does I she th- know that she is? Is that, does I th- that Yeah, I, I think she does know. And actually, you know, it goes both ways. I think there are lots of people on the left who say she's being treated unfairly because she's transgender. And I, I think, in a way, that's no better than people saying that, you know, she should be treated badly because she's transgender. Um, I think, although... Her campaigning is bound up in, in, in both her transgenderism and her demands transparency. I think they are different things and I think it, 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 they shouldn't be confused. And yet they are. And I think absolutely it, it says a lot about the culture wars that she she's sort of these, this polarising figure. Of, you know, either you it, it, there's not a lot of nuance about her. And and same, with, same with Assange as well. Interesting. In, in a different sense, he is both a figure who is a martyr to free speech at one level, but is also a suspected rapist at another and so the prosecution of Assange is now clouded as is it a an act of legitimate prosecution to to test out whether he is guilty of the things he's accused of or is that a proxy for silencing him exactly it's, yeah it's, it's it's very interesting it's 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 a bit of a nasty coincidence that you know because of his potential um you know rape case or whatever that, that he, it's it's become that way it's obviously complicated as well by the fact that he's been useful to trump so trump who you know doesn't like traitors doesn't like people leaking government secrets or whatever massively prospered by the edward snowden leak which came via wikileaks and which you know incriminated hillary clinton or at least exposed hillary clinton so he's said things in support of assange and now he's backtracking on that and it becomes very, very, very complicated. And this isn't a film to unpick all that. This, and this no, is quite a so slight. This is quite a slight film. Just it's to... quite a slight film. What I did like about it was the closeness you get to, to Manning. So I didn't, you know, I didn't have because she's been inside for so much, and although she's she's done interviews subsequently or whatever, I didn't have much sense of her as an individual. And that close up, you know, the director keeps out of it. You don't hear any voiceover or anything like that. You you just get lots of Chelsea Manning hanging out with her friends, her campaign team. Her, you know, sort of her, her political supporters doing stuff, um, and that that was quite nice. But it's 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 a it's a companion piece to the wider story. Toby Lishtig, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In November 2018, the TLS published a symposium asking a selection of historians, including Mary Beard, Edward Lutvak and Timothy Snyder, a simple question. To what extent is it helpful and or accurate to describe President Donald Trump as a fascist? Mary Fulbrook, whose book Reckonings, Legacies of Nazi Persecution and the Quest for Justice, won the Wolfson History Prize earlier this month, summed things up neatly. While the description is not entirely accurate, a comparison is helpful, or at least must give us cause for thought. There are, she said, worrying parallels. But if you're thinking this exercise reductive, sensational even, it might be worth taking a longer view of the present moment and reflecting on the American mood before, during and to a degree after the Second World War. The scope of Nazi influence was considerably greater than historians have until recently appreciated. In this week's TLS, the historian Eric Rauchway considers two new books that shed light on an uncomfortable past – Hitler's American Friends by Bradley Hart and The Unwanted by Michael Dobbs. He joins us on the line to tell us more now. Hello, Eric. Good morning or afternoon, whatever it may be where you are. Both. <laughs> okay. Podcast, it's, 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 it's any time, yeah. <laughs> yes. given, given the history of America's race relations, uh, I mean, the prevalence for one thing of eugenicist thought and policy, isn't that surprising that this was a society primed and ready for Hitler's influence, is it? No. I mean, the United States had a long history of which Hitler was personally quite envious of uh, racist policymaking, which included, as you say, eugenics laws for the sterilization of unfit individuals and uh, exclusionary immigration policy, which was uh, uh, pretty much entirely racist in its orientation, uh, keeping out uh, pretty much all of Asia and much of Eastern and Southern Europe. And um, those were things that inspired, uh, to a degree, Hitler and the Nazis. So it's it's scarcely um, surprising, as you say, that the Nazis should in turn have found some adherence uh, among American citizens. Well, you, you point out in your opening, you say even the blood supplies of the United States Army during the Second World War were segregated by race. 
Yes, the United States, of course, has a, a long tradition of segregation uh, focused principally on African Americans, though not exclusively. There are uh, fairly wide ranging exclusions for uh, Mexicans and for uh, Asian folks as well. So, yes, I mean, if you look at that, the, the sort of the two sides fighting on the Western Front in the Second World War, it's really the racists versus the Nazis, and you kind of have to root for the racists. <laughs> How much was there this anti an anti-war feeling generally? This, um, which is partially based on on a sense of national identity, I, I suppose that whatever Hitler was doing, uh, it wasn't for America to intervene. Was there was was some of this sympathy masked by pacifism? Well, there were some genuine fas uh, pacifists, to be sure, but it's it's hard to tease that apart from sort of sympathetic nationalists and fascists. The sense that America first was 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 a was a sustainable policy was mostly focused on the sense that the United States ought to be doing its kind of nationalist exclusionary policy, while the Germans could do their kind of nationalist exclusionary policy, and the two could uh, uh, exist on opposite sides of the Atlantic. And how acceptable is that? Was that as an opinion? It could, could, was that an opinion that was uttered in in polite society in, in the in the late thirties? I guess it depends what you think of as polite. I mean, you know, the major newspapers, certainly the widest circulation newspapers, like those of William Randolph Hearst, had the slogan "America First" right there above the title of the papers. So it was uh, it was fairly, and and Hearst published uh, columns by Mussolini and Hitler, and himself clearly favored uh, some kind of nationalistic dictatorship, at least in, in, through part of the 1930s. Um, how polite was William Randolph Hearst? Uh, he was very vulgar, as you know, in many, many <laughs> respects, but uh, he, was certainly, he certainly had an audience. And um, there were people who were uh, more respectable, at least superficially respectable, again, looking at publishers uh, of newspapers who, who um, spread these opinions pretty widely. Then, of course, there were major diplomats in the American State Department who really didn't want to have anything to do with um, hindering the progress of Nazism. Uh, which was uh, deeply unfortunate for would-be Jewish refugees from uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, so, what do we learn from Bradley Hart's book then? I mean, how how deep-seated was the pro-fascist feeling, and how did it how did it how did it manifest or not? You know, how did it remain sort of implicit? It's much more widespread than than one would have thought. I think there there are certainly tens of thousands of adherents of various fascist slash Nazi organizations. These include things like the German American Bund, uh, which is perhaps more obvious, but also the uh, an organization called the Silver Shirts, which were a bit more uh, uh, American styled uh, Nazis. There were also the uh, the Christian Front. Uh, so, so if you add all these together, you, you get some tens of thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of uh, fellow travelers or sympathizers. And then perhaps even more alarmingly, there are highly placed officials in the United States government, including some senators and congressmen, who were more than happy during the debate over American aid to Britain uh, to take Nazi propaganda and to distribute it through the mails or to insert it into their speeches. So I, I think uh, if you take all that together, you, you find a rather troubling pattern. You mention in, in the piece one Nazi agent was writing speeches for US legislators, which is quite remarkable. Yeah, if you look at the uh, Justice Department's investigation of Nazi propaganda influence in this period, they have a list of perhaps two dozen senators and congressmen who had Nazi propaganda turning up in their uh, publications or speeches. They're not sure, of course, how many of them were witting 
agents of the Nazi propagandists, but they're pretty sure about uh, Ernest Lundin uh, and perhaps a few others who Hart talks about in his book. Um, it's a bit like a James, sounds a bit like a James Elroy novel, uh, this actually, these, these, these Nazi, racist, explicitly fascist people at the centre of, of decision-making. It's very much like that. You know, there's a very much of a sort of real live film noir aspect where the sort of the sleaziest and the shadiest and the fringiest of people are hanging out with people at the very top of uh, politics. Yeah, we, we've headlined your piece Selling to Suckers, which has a sort of a, <laughs> has, has sort of carries that that, that, that noirish the noirish uh, feel. Um, America First become, became notorious with with Donald Trump. How toxic a phrase was that, and at what point was it toxic? I mean, it's an interesting thing. When he uses the phrase America first and was happy for that, was that consciously, subconsciously, blatantly a return to what was a very clearly fascistic nationalist slogan? I cannot pretend to see inside the president's mind, but I, I can tell you that, you know, for... Maybe three decades before the Second World War, it was a phrase that knocked about American politics and culture for a long time. Woodrow Wilson tried to use it for a non-nationalist, non-fascistic uh, agenda, but that didn't last very long, and it was very quickly taken over by uh, the Klan, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, and by opponents of immigration, and by people we would nowadays call isolationists and other nationalists, and as I mentioned, William Randolph Hearst, and it's stuck in that side of the political spectrum right up through, as you say, the America First Committee, which was established in the fall of 1940, after the Nazis had occupied uh, Western Europe, and of course were, were bombing Britain to oppose uh, American intervention. And that was really how it got discredited. You know, it was associated with that cause. And uh, it really didn't pop up again until Trump's uh, picking it up when he decided to run for would president. Would it have been a loaded, so, loaded term? Well, I guess I mean, it's impossible to know what he would know, but is it, is it, was it a loaded term even to be used, do you think? Would enough people know it was loaded? I think anybody who knew what it was would know that it was loaded at its height it had 800,000 odd members and former presidents Gerald Ford JFK was a member well Gerald Ford would have been very young and <laughs> also I mean in, in 1940 and certainly there were a number of young people who didn't want to go to war especially uh, you know JFK was the child of a um, defeatist uh, American official Joseph Kennedy, who uh, John Kennedy later had to slightly repudiate yeah. in order to run for president. So that's another James. Um, yeah. That's another James Sorry. Elroy novel, actually. <laughs> as, as yeah, well. in, indeed. Yeah, exactly. So um, th th there were um, there were, as you say, a number of later prominent people who had been in it. As, as I say, it's quite understandable that if you were a young person in 1940, looking back at the First World War, you wouldn't necessarily want to go to, to war. How much uh, is anti-Semitism? Um, uh, an issue here um, because this is this is purely a this is an issue I suppose where the Nazis overtly by the mid-1930s were pushing anti-Semitic agenda how was, was that playing strongly in America or is that being overlooked or was it being was it being valued by some people that's one of those things where it was clearly not supposed to be uh, something that a decent person said very loudly, but that it was said quite softly or privately, or in the case of Charles Lindbergh, the America First spokesman in his diary, that, 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 was, uh, that was quite common. 
And uh, I mentioned this in the, in the essay, Bradley Hart cites uh, some polls of the late 1930s showing increasing anti-Semitism in the United States. You know, as many as a third of Americans or so wanted uh, the federal government to take action to stop Jews from gaining power, whatever that, that sort of meant. And a uh, much smaller but significant number wanted uh, the United States to um, deport uh, Jews. The f official immigration policy of the United States from 1924 onwards um, restricted, seriously restricted immigration from Eastern Europe, and that was, of course, where most Jews were coming from. That was not a coincidence. And um, very many uh, State Department officials had one or another kind of I suppose we would call it genteel anti-Semitic attitudes that uh, interfered with their being sympathetic to refugees. And I guess the question, just final question is, do what's the legacy today? Do you feel you make, I think you make a point at the, at the end of your, uh, your piece that things might be different if Americans had retained an anti-fascism or, or, or developed an anti-fascistic attitude in the same way they developed an anti-communistic attitude, which is which was the, the thing that shaped the rest of the century. Yeah, I think that's true. It's uh, there has been, you know, for some decades, the idea of a so-called brown scare floating around in the literature of um, American history of this period, saying that the United States government went after fascists. But it appears, in light of uh, Bradley Hart's book, particularly that the brown scare wasn't. Uh, of adequate scope to the actual threat, I suppose. And certainly it wasn't anywhere near the level of the Red Scare after the war. And uh, the, the um, hunting down of people who were associated with communism was, as you know, very energetic in the late 40s and the early 50s, whereas the hunting down of people who had been associated with fascist causes, including uh, many businessmen and politicians who actively abetted uh, Nazism, was uh, nowhere near so... Um, Industrious, so uh, uh, yeah, I think it. Uh, we might have seen a very different post-war landscape had there really been such a, such even a you know a tenth of uh, of such the energy devoted to rooting out fascism. I mean, you could say that for Italy as well. All of these countries that sort of fail to reckon with with fascism in the immediate aftermath of war, they're they're all the countries that are seeing it a version of it coming back. That's interesting. Yeah, and even in you know Allied occupied Germany, yeah. uh, denazification kind of slowed down and stalled pretty quickly. Well, they often needed Nazis, didn't they, or ex-Nazis yeah, to do to the spying them. against Russia, didn't they? That's, that that was, became a practical necessity. That was the principally, uh, that was the concern that they principally cited, yeah. But potentially just not, uh, there was not much systemic keenness to do anything other than that is, is the point you're making. Well, and of course, that was the original excuse for uh, admiring or favoring or letting the Nazis do their job is that they were a bulwark against advancing uh, Soviet power. Uh, well, that, that's a whole other podcast, I feel, uh, <laughs> Eric. Uh, interesting, and though it certainly is. Uh, Eric Rauchway, uh, what a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I always find fascinating about Germany, Theo, is that they really, ironically, they've dealt with the legacy yeah. Of the war. Again and again and again. And they're very peaceable. They're defined by it. Yeah, and, and it's 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 the outcome for their society post Cold War yeah. as unification has been it's it seems to have handled it better yeah. than say Italy has. Oh yeah. Um, without a doubt. And then it's an interesting question there to to float that other countries like Britain and America, which you feel 
because they were on the right side of history in the Second World they War. They haven't had to confront, they haven't had to do the reckoning no, they've made, that, that, that Germany has had to. So, yeah. you know, the fact that there was, you know, and we've just been looking at America, but there, were, there was loads of sympathy over here as well in the UK. There was. Well, um, yeah. We did, um, yeah, but there were the fascists, the brown shirts, yeah. the, you know, Edward VIII was pal of... Um, pal of Hitler you know, yeah the, the, exactly it was, all, it was all very cosy and anti-semitism among the upper classes was a was a huge British mm. thing mm. in the I mean I'm not saying it doesn't exist now but in the 30s it was a you can't read I mean it's no coincidence you cannot read a book in the 1920s or 30s that is anglophone yeah almost without someone making a anti-semitic an anti-semitic remark yeah um, that's all we've got time for uh, this week alas our thanks go to Claire Loudon Toby Lishtig and Eric Rouchway Please make sure you do get a copy of the TLS this week. Honestly, I'm not going to lie to you. It is quite good. We look at all aspects of American culture, get a dispatch from William Boyd from uh, France, try to identify Edith Wharton's dad and have an account of the India-Pakistan cricket match from an Indian MP. All that and more. Next week, it is the centennial of Iris Murdoch. You'll be on holiday, I think, won't you, Steve? It's actually, I'm not on oh, holiday. Oh, no, of course not. Uh, no. I'm not on holiday. I may even be here, Thea. I may not, but there That's is a threat. There is a threat. There is a. <laughs> it is not confirmed that I will not be here. Okay. You have to find that out. Until then, from there and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.